Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. How, how is uh, how's Chutney, your imaginary dog? Well, you know, it's funny you should say this because I did a Yorkshire Business Forum Zoom call with lots of businesses in, in, in Yorkshire a couple of days ago. And the very nice hosts asked me about Chutney. <laughs> the news of Chutney is spreading. I thought you were. I thought you were going to tell us that Chutney interrupted the Zoom call. You know, you keep seeing this <laughs> footage of people with their pets coming in when they're That's doing true. video conferencing. Well, there was a great one actually the other day of a, we- a weatherman in uh, somewhere in America. Oh, I saw it. Yeah, and yeah. his dog completely disrupted it. Yeah. Uh, no, Chutney's doing okay. I mean, he's being good-ish. I mean, it's taking some time with the training, and and uh, you know, clearly the walking of him is kind of quite a business. But you know. Has everybody got clearly defined roles for looking after Chutney and the family? I think so. I think obviously the lion's share is falling on the parents, but, you know, the children (laughs) just like to sort of, you know, cuddle him and sort of have a nice time and, you know, feed him dog biscuits. Um, uh, I tried to find online, I tried to find you one of those novelty imaginary dog leads. I found I haven't bought it, but I did find one, yeah. Um... Yeah, I thought it might be taking it a bit too far, actually. Yeah. Walking around with a lead with no dog. Yes, I mean, I don't know that there are that many paparazzi on the streets at the moment. No, that's true. Even so, there are people with camera phones. You don't, yeah. you don't want that, do you? I, don't, I, think, I think on balance you don't. You don't yeah. really. It might, it, might, it might seem a bit peculiar. How's your week been? You're sort of in, you're in the kind of birthday sandwich, aren't you? Because yours was last week, and, you know, we obviously had a big celebration for that. Um, uh, and Sarah's is now, sort of tomorrow, actually. We're recording on Friday. Yes, yes. So I'm still sort of figuring out what to do. Um, you're still figuring it out? Well, I thought I could have her favourite bagels delivered, but then... Uh, I double checked and they don't deliver to my postcode. So I've, I've got a few ideas, but I've got a very good present. I can tell you what it is. Because, yeah, go on. Um, 
She's she's not here, obviously. Um, I've I've got her a pressure washer. What's that? You know, one of those hoses for cleaning off the paving slabs in the back garden. Right. You don't think this is a good birthday present? I mean, that's a that's a very romantic present. <laughs> she is obs- We a couple of summers ago, she borrowed one from one of our neighbours, and she became so obsessed about using it that she was out till midnight pressure washing the backyard. Do you get to turn the sort of front of it so it goes? Psh. Exactly. Yeah, it's a hose, really, isn't it? It is a hose, but it's a really powerful hose. Well, I'll let you know how it's a hose by any other name. <laughs> I'll let you know how it goes down on uh, next week's episode. Look, I think it's good. I think I'm, I'm definitely not uh, present shaming you. I think it's uh, I'm obviously not in a position to do that. Um, uh, no, I think it's um, I, I think it's good. I mean, we're actually already starting to wonder whether where what situation is going to be when Daniel has his birthday at the beginning of June. But I think we're sort of a bit early to to be thinking about that. Well, let's talk about this week's episode, and, and there's some really positive news, I think. Yes, let's talk about this week's episode. We're talking about the action taken on homelessness in the last month or so. At the end of March, the government asked English councils to provide housing for all rough sleepers during the lockdown to allow them to socially distance. And thousands of rough sleepers have been housed in empty hotels, B&Bs and student accommodation. The government says that 90% of those sleeping rough before social distancing have been helped into temporary housing. Um, And there's some discussion about the exact figures, but there's definitely been a massive change. Uh, It's important to say that at the same time, conditions have got worse for some of those left on the streets and the economic crisis risks leading to a rise in homelessness. But this rapid action suggests we we are actually able to end some of our biggest social problems when there is a political will to do so. And we're going to be talking to Matt Downey from Crisis and Maggie Brunges from Homeless Network Scotland uh, about what the lessons of this are and how we build on it to prevent a return to rough sleeping coming out of the crisis. And then we'll be asking geographer Danny Dawling what this shows more broadly about our ability to tackle injustice. That all sounds great. And we should do our reasons to be cheerful. What's yours? I think I've got two, really. You've had a good week. I mean, just in the sort of animal kingdom... Uh, theme. I was quite struck by the Japanese eels. Do you know about this? Are these real eels or imaginary eels? No, these ones are actually real eels. Um, uh, the campaign for real eels. Uh, the the um, <laughs> uh, the the these are the eels in Japan that because in an aquarium that because the um, that there've been no visitors obviously in the last six weeks or so they've become rather kind of discombobulated and now they've become very shy and so whenever the keepers pass by they disappear so people are being asked they've now set up five ipads around the eel eelery and uh and they're asking people to sort of facetime with the eels wow maybe that's quite a good birthday present for sarah she could facetime with an eel well, she's she really freaked. She's really freaked out by eels. If we ever go to an aquarium, she will stand looking at them and sort of shrieking. Well, let's find um, out what the eels think about Sarah. Drawn. Yes. Okay. There we go. There I mean, we don't go. You think that's, that's a good. We'll e- it might be an extra present. And then the other one is it's sort of in the box set vein. You know, we're, we're all you know wanting stuff we can watch, and it's quite nice when you get into something that you know you've got a massive number of series to go. So we've started to get into Parks and Recreation. Oh, yeah, yeah. With Amy Poehler. And the thing I like about Parks and Recreation is it's quite funny. Um, 
it, it, it doesn't involve sort of, you know, death or destruction. It's quite short. So it's like 20 minutes or so an episode. Um, and, and it's quite, I, I, you, I know you've never quite got into it, but I, I'm, I'm recommending it. Well, they've just done a reunion episode as well, I believe. I mean, you're a long way off. I that, didn't even know but... it had ended. Yeah, I think it ended five years ago. Oh gosh! And they've just done a reunion in the form of a Zoom meeting, which I was reading about this morning. So you know, you might be watching that come 2024 or something. I mean, sometimes it can be. I said to Justine, "Why don't we skip to Series A?" And that was a kind of very, very heretical concept. She just did not think that was the right thing to do. I think that's a, why would you do that? Just when you see the ending, <laughs> get 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 sort of get up get up to speed. Anyway, what's your reason to be cheerful? Uh, my reason to be cheerful is Sirius Radio, which is American satellite radio, which you can't get over here. On which you generally. broadcast about the Be- Beatles. I do. The Beatles have their own channel over there, and I do a show for them. But they are streaming for free during the lockdown until i think the end of may and you can listen online here in the uk and part of that means you can listen to howard stern's interviews now howard stern has this reputation as a as a shock jock and for doing some you know certainly the stuff he was doing in the 80s and 90s by today's standards is is highly questionable to say the least but his interviews uh that he's been doing these past few years are the best interviews you will hear with anybody anywhere he is so adept i mean he's a man who spends five days a week in therapy and it shows in his interviews but he will do these incredible hour sometimes two hour long conversations with people like hillary clinton um jerry seinfeld david letterman paul mccartney whoever and they are incredible if you put aside everything you think you know about him and just listen to him as an interviewer they're just magnificent Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. To discuss where we are now with homelessness during this crisis and what lessons it has for the future, I'm glad to say that we are joined by Matt Downey, who's Director of Policy and External Affairs at Crisis, and Maggie Brunges, who is Chief Executive of Homeless Network Scotland. Thank you so much for joining us. Matt, we spoke to you a couple of years ago about ending homelessness in the UK and the idea of housing first. We've seen major steps taken in the last few weeks on rough sleeping. Uh, Tell us, just to begin with, what has happened and how it's been done. Yeah, so something absolutely extraordinary unfolded just over a month ago, um, where in response to to the pandemic... Someone quite extraordinary turned up back in Whitehall called Louise Casey, who I know you, you will have worked with before, Ed, uh, who has a track record in, in reducing rough sleeping, but also working on a series of other issues. And, and uh, an email was sent out to all local councils in England on a Wednesday evening, uh, seemingly innocuously. And what it said was, we would like you to end rough sleeping by the weekend. And... Uh, Lo and behold, thousands of people were brought from the streets and out of night shelters and put into uh, hotels, put into student accommodation, put into into flats, self-contained units. Um, And not everyone that needed somewhere uh, safe to stay got somewhere safe to stay, but we're now at a stage where over 5,000 people have been taken off the streets and out of night shelters in England. Um, and, And the vast majority of rough sleeping was ended almost overnight. So the government's target, which it had, which was to end rough sleeping in five years, was reduced to two days. 
and we saw uh, that not not only was it absolutely possible, but it was possible really quickly. So, um, really, the, the the game is up on any kind of cynicism, that particularly in terms of rough sleeping, that it can't be ended. Um, and it's not complete. Yes, there are still some people on the streets, and some people, um, you know, haven't necessarily flourished in that hotel situation. But the vast majority of people are now safe, safe from the, from the the virus, but also safe from the everyday dangers of of rough sleeping and homelessness. It's a ninety percent reduction, is it, Matt? Well, the government claims a, a 90% reduction. It's not quite that. What that, that, that sort of breaks down. It's 90% of people that had an offer um, about a month ago. Um, you know, were, were given were given a, an alternative they could take up. Uh, it's not 90% of everyone. And of course, the problem is that that it, there are still people becoming homeless. So there are more people going onto the street uh, all the time. But you know. Um, certainly in England, we saw something extraordinary happen, and you know Maggie will talk about uh, about Scotland, but in Wales, I would say it's been even better. So, the, and how the, much does it cost in England? Well, in in England, there's only been three point two million pounds that's been given to councils to do this. Um, you'll know there's over three hundred local councils in England. In Wales, ten million pounds was given to twenty two local councils, um, and it, it's. Uh, even better in terms of the results in Wales. We're told it's just single figures of people out sleeping rough now in, uh, in Cardiff and other, and other towns and cities, which is absolutely extraordinary. And, and, it, and it's testament, I suppose, to the idea that when government is assertive, when it says what it wants, when it funds what it wants, and when, it's, when it puts sort of principle into action, uh, extraordinary things really can happen. Amen to that. Um, um, Maggie, Homeless policy is devolved in Scotland. Tell us about the situation there. Yeah, and thanks. And that's a very important um, starting point, um, actually, because it, it goes some way to explaining, I think, the different levels um, of rust sleeping across uh, the UK. Um, so not not least, of course, Scotland's a smaller country, so the starting point um, is different. And um, the fact that housing policy is devolved um, means that people across the UK have a different set of um, rights if they become homeless. Um, and in Scotland, uh, almost everybody has a right to um, at least temporary accommodation and most people uh, have a right to settled accommodation. Um, so as I say, it means that even proportionately the, the starting point of rust sleeping in Scotland um, is lower. What, what we could also say, and I think what we recognise is exactly what Matt just described, um, is this remarkable urgency around the situation. The fact that we have partners um, across the country and um, in all our different roles, from local and national government to third sector providers to real local grassroots voluntary groups, all um, all in the same page um, and everybody behaving well because everybody sees it um, as an opportunity to do something um, incredibly important. So we are definitely recognising that urgency as well. So I think similar, uh, and, and I think across the UK, the, the approach has been um, very similar. Um, and it seems as though it's not the, the same approach that's happening in other parts of the Europe and um, beyond. So I think we can take quite a lot uh, to be proud of, of this. But moving people that were sleeping off into hotel accommodation, um, and in Edinburgh particularly using uh, short-term lets, so typically what were Airbnbs, um, to get almost all people that were sleeping rough um, into this temporary uh, kind of accommodation. So we think in, in Glasgow now, less than five people um, are still sleeping rough. Um, Edinburgh, less than 10. Amazing. 
It's amazing. Has this, as somebody who works in this area and has worked in it for some time, Maggie, has it sort of surprised you? Um, I think exactly um, the point that Matt made is, is one that I would support, is that I think hypothetically we always knew it was possible. I think we were able to draw on experiences in other parts of the world, particularly if you look at what's happening in, in Finland and in the parts of North America, who, when they really put their mind to it and when they really um, provide a determined policy environment and make sure that that's backed up with funding, that they do see these differences, these radical differences in terms of the scale, nature and causes of um, rough sleeping. So I think, um, you know, Matt, you would probably express the same. I think in, when we look at it through a UK lens, we always knew it was possible, hypothetically, but to see it done so quickly, um, at least the rough sleeping sharp end of it um, has been phenomenal. And what do we know about the impact so far on the people who are now in accommodation? A couple of stories on on that, Jeff. I think the the, the first one that really really struck me was a um, a, a guy in his forties in in the Midlands who was put into a hotel, um, and he had been sleeping rough for a, a number of years, and we were in touch with him. And the, and the first thing we noticed was he, he was saying to us that he wouldn't sleep on the bed, that he would sleep on the floor. Um, and, and that he himself was describing how he didn't feel like he was worthy of what had been given to him. Um, and there was a, a real sense of, of kind of, you know, that that his own personal kind of confidence and sense of dignity had been so damaged by his time on the street that he, could, he couldn't quite believe what was happening to him. Um, and that, you know, I mean, luckily we've been supporting him for a number of weeks and, and I hope he's, he's feeling a lot more positive. Um, another story was somebody in the northwest, uh, a young woman who had been on the streets for I think about a year, and uh, has a very serious addiction issue. And she has been in in a, not just a hotel now, but an, an apartment hotel. So she has her own kind of cooking facilities and, and bathroom and all the rest of it. Um, and she's she's told us she's been clean for the thirty plus days that she's been in there. And this is this is the moment that she's been waiting for to start rebuilding her life. You know, this is. You know, going back to the to what we talked about last time in terms of housing first, the ability for people to feel like they're safe and um, confident in their own physical space really can unlock, you know, the future for people and, and not just recovering from their homelessness, but unlocking what it is that they want to achieve in their lives. Are people able to address the other issues that they might be dealing with now that housing? Is something that is 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 sorted out for them for the time being. Are you are you finding that people are able to uh, address their other issues? Well, I mean, this is hard because obviously the social distancing element of this is is you know means that the the support staff that we have and I'm sure Maggie has work you know you can't physically get to people. There's a lot of online uh, work going on to get people you know the, the practical assistance to get onto the universal credit or get kind of drug and alcohol treatment or whatever it might be. Um, but of course, yes, it's, it's so much easier. I mean, all of us are, are much more able to address our, our problems if we've got somewhere safe to live. It's just a, a basic human fact that seems to have escaped kind of policy making on homelessness for a long time. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's, it's, it's very good, obviously, that people are safe in, in hotel spaces, but it isn't the answer. The answer is a home of their own. And that's why really now is the chance particularly in England, to supercharge housing first and see it completely spread across the country. So we see that as the answer. 
Maggie, have you seen uh, people being able to have access to other services to deal with, uh, for example, mental health or addiction issues? Or is that tricky at this time? I think it's it's tricky for reasons um, that we all understand in terms of some of the rules that are in place that are just kind of prohibiting, um, you know, kind of access to normal services. But what it's definitely doing on a more positive um, note is it's definitely providing that breather, that moment to just collect your thoughts, you know, to just take this, as Matt describes, take this as an opportunity to think through, right, after this, what's next for me, you know? And, and it is, you know, I, I don't want to detract from it. It's an incredible thing. Uh, just the, the numbers that we started with are amazing. But I, I wondered if we could talk a little bit about the sort of ongoing problems for I mean, the, those people who are still on the streets, but also the risk, Matt, you touched on this, the, the risk of homelessness for people during and because of the crisis. Yeah, so I mean, it, it, I think it's it would be really remiss not not to point out that there there are people still on the streets, um, and in many ways it's much much worse than than normal times, and and you know, Lord knows it's bad enough in normal times, um, but you know, our, our services are still open, and we're, and we're seeing people um, who haven't eaten for days because you know what they might normally rely on in terms of you know shops being open, food banks being open, public donations. Um, you know, soup runs even, none of them are there. Um, and, you know, that's, this is sort of, for, for people still on the streets, this is a humanitarian situation. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's extremely serious. And, and we, we, you know, continue to push the government to make sure they're not complacent or in any way sort of self-congratulatory about this, because it's until it's done, it's not done. Um, and even, you know, even if we're talking five or ten people in, uh, as Maggie has said, in Glasgow and Edinburgh, that's still too many. Um, and yes, there are there are new forces leading people into homelessness. So we were talking to people in, in central London the other day who were, were almost kind of sort of, um, you know, shell shocked by 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 homelessness appearing so quickly in their lives. And particularly people that have come out of the hospitality and catering industry, which absolutely depended on this. Some people whose accommodation went with their job um, in the hospitality industry, that kind of thing. And and so, yeah, I mean, uh, they, they there are a lot of people who were just on the edge of homelessness. And if you imagine if you were sofa surfing, kind of, you know, getting friends and family or, or just people, you know, to give you a favour, they're less likely to do that when when they've got their own social distancing and isolation arrangements to deal with. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's it's very serious for those people who still are on the streets. It's that feeling, isn't it, that we all have that experience of, at the moment of, um, you know, all these systems that we take for granted round about us kind of grinding to a halt. I mean, I guess one of the things for people that are sleeping rough and going through some of the toughest times of their life um, is that that's their normality. It, it was kind of always that way. Um, and what they're going through at the moment was what they were kind of going through before. Um, and I guess the imperative for, for us um, that, that, that care about kind of trying to make this easier for people is about trying to make sure that that's not the normal um, that they return to. That idea of um, that kind of lack of certainty, the lack of security, all that contradictory advice that's out there, not getting enough advice feeling you know people not being shown up services not speaking to each other i mean that's stuff that we're all going through at the moment and as as i say what people have been going through for um most of their lives really so um for us how can we ensure that we can um collect our thinking um and action on the ground to make sure that we can you know create a better um, response for people after this i guess the sort of absolute million dollar question now is 
as well as the issues you've raised about those who have entered into crisis, um, how do we ensure we don't go back to where we were on rough sleeping? And I'm sure that's a lot in your mind because, you know, we can't just, you know, not solve it, but we can't go so far to addressing it as we have during this crisis only to slip back to where we were. And just to be interesting, Maggie, why don't you start just to give your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a window uh, um, and it's not as long a window as we would like, um, but it's one that we've not had before. It's almost a bit of a pause to enable people to get their act together um, in all our different roles across local and national government, third sector providers, housing associations and others um, to really plan now for what's going to come up ahead in the next um, kind of few weeks. There's a view, I think, quite widely um, shared that the, the, the tourism sector um, is no is no doubt going to be affected um, for a period post-COVID. So what that means for hundreds of people in hotels um, is that, you know, the, the risk of people being turfed out overnight is probably not going to happen. There's probably going to be an amount of time, a small amount of time, um, to enable uh, some of those step-down services uh, to happen. But there's a bigger conversation, isn't there, around about that, um, that, that people need to have. Um, and I think in Scotland, it's a conversation that's definitely uh, started. Um, so it's about how can we get councils and housing associations um, to make homes available um, for Scottish government, of course, in, in the longer term. Um, how do we ensure that we build more social housing? But in the short term, how do we just get local housing systems moving and housing systems, um, including the temporary housing systems that many people are, uh, are in? So not, not not including the people that we're talking about that have taken up hotel and short term let accommodation as a result of the crisis. In Scotland, there's already 11,000 people sitting in temporary accommodation waiting to move through the system um, into to permanent accommodation. So the, the actions that we need to take, some of them need to be short term and now, and it's about protecting with urgency people that are in hotels and short term lets, um, but also um, the next steps, which is about looking at the, the, the system and trying to create as many housing options and as many opportunities for people um, to enable that whole system to move forward. Um, so there are, there are a number of low cost, also medium and high cost um, incentives and actions that can be taken to just now to enable in the next few weeks to, to ease forward as, as quickly as possible. Excellent, Matt. Yeah, I suppose the, the what this has shown is is that when you when you take off all of the um, kind of arbitrary barriers that were that were in place for people to get into into housing or to stay in housing, um, something amazing can happen. And and you know when 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 the, the sort of legendary email went out from Louise Casey uh, asking to get everyone off the streets. Uh, it was clear it was everyone. It wasn't dependent on your immigration status. It wasn't dependent on your kind of, you know, whether you're considered by as a priority by your local local council or whether you're seen to have caused your own homelessness. All of those things overnight would disappeared. And of course, you know, uh, what that shows is that when we when we decide to help everyone, regardless of whether we des- we we sort of badge some people as deserving or undeserving, um, we can do extraordinary things, and that and that principle must be continued. That's the way forward. But I would also say that um, this this approach of of getting people into their own home and then delivering the amount of support they need is the, is the absolute kind of crucial sort of um, fundamental building block. Housing first, in other words. 
Yes, and, and, and we've sent a proposal, and, we're, and, I've, and very rarely been as pleased to send an email to government as this one. We sent a fully costed proposal through to, to the government in Westminster uh, last week, detailing how much it would cost and all of the detailed measures needed to completely roll out Housing First and, and all of the support. And how needs. much would it cost? Um, uh, our estimate is £97 million over 12 months. Um, and I think that that's a bargain to save the lives of and improve the lives of some of the most marginalised people uh, we have in the country. And, and maybe we should end on this. I mean, isn't it very striking, the sort of boldness of the action in the crisis when it was, you know, well, w- when government decided it was an emergency, but the incrementalism i was just so struck by matt by what you said that you know the government achieved its five-day target in two days or you know the, the five-day target became a two-day target um five-year target sorry became a two two two-day target i mean what does this teach us do you both think i mean i think there's um there's a strong uh, argument that we spend a lot of money in homelessness but not always in the most effective or evidence-based ways what we already know about housing first and it's why people feel so passionately about it is that first of all it's just a very non-patronising way of redressing the disadvantage that people have often spent a lifetime um, experiencing by making no assumptions about them or what they need um, and just recognising that most of us with the right support can manage um, can manage our own place I mean that's, that's it but what also housing first we know about it is that it costs less than status quo so it costs less to house people than it does to keep them homeless and it's such an important message to keep I think at the front of all our minds as we go forward is that getting people off the streets and enabling people to build and live their lives is more cost effective for local and national governments and housing associations and others as well as obviously um, being better for, for people that it affects. Matt? Yeah, I, I think that to add to that, one of the things that we've learned through the last few weeks um, that we probably knew anyway is is that the experiment with localism and homelessness uh, has failed. That the, the idea that you have a fragmented system where, you know, hundreds of different approaches can take place across the country, some people having the resources, some people not, some people, you know, having, you know, rules for some people that would qualify one side of a border and not on the other for housing. That's just inappropriate. And I, and I think, I, I don't think you need to be a, a Stalinist to say that a kind of statist approach to this achieves more than leaving it to be devolved to every council to think about it in their own way. And, and, you know, it became unacceptable overnight for the government to to imagine that there would be people dying of, of a, a deadly virus on our streets. Uh, but people die on our streets anyway. Um, 700 people a year die in England and Wales whilst they're homeless. Um, and that, that should have already been unacceptable. Um, I, I could, it, it's fantastic that we've seen this move forward, but... Um, it is very, in many ways very sad for those people who didn't see that level of urgency when they needed it in their life beforehand. And if somebody going out for their once a day exercise um, uh, meets somebody who's still homeless despite all of these measures, where should they direct them? Well, if, if you're in England or Wales, then there's a, there's a service called Streetlink, which is a, an app you can download on your phone or a number that you can call, uh, which, which uh, essentially just refers the person to the local council and the outreach team is meant to come and find them. 
and, and offer accommodation. Um, um, obviously, Maggie can talk for Scotland, but that's a, that's a system that that is there right across England and Wales. So hopefully everyone can use that. Maggie? Absolutely. Um, and I think one of the things that we always hear from people that have um, slept off um, is never underestimate um, the, the, the power and welcome um, of somebody just saying hello um, and asking, you know, how, how you are. That that's incredibly important for people not to feel invisible, um, and particularly right now. I think beyond that, what's almost certainly the case um, is that people... Um, are already connected to services. So in Scotland, there's um, great outreach um, support workers, particularly across those two cities, Simon Community, Simonians, Bethany um, and others who know who's still out there um, and who are connected into them. So what's preventing people coming inside um, is, is a whole complicated set um, of issues uh, beyond the, that uh, you know, immediate need for housing. Okay. Uh, well, look, Maggie Bringers, uh, Matt Downey. Uh, genuinely, this has been a, a reason to be cheerful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We're going to speak now to Danny Dorling, who is a professor of geography at the University of Oxford. Uh, Danny, hello. Thanks for zooming with us. Uh, we've got a nice view of an acoustic guitar over your right shoulder there. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me on. We want Danny's wife to play it, but we haven't yet persuaded him. She, she's the guitar player, is that right? Uh, yes, if you have me on again, uh, we can try and uh, do that. Um, she might be a bit shy about it, but uh, we, we will ask. And, and how, how are you coping with lockdown, Danny? Um, better now than I was. We, we kind of adapt to human beings. It's amazing how quickly you get used to something. Um, what did you struggle with at first? Oh, I... I was absolutely addicted to my normal life. Uh, all the things that we complain about, like going into work or the commute, you suddenly realise how much you missed them. Um, and I was really addicted uh, to, you know, I give talks about books, I travel around the country to my great shame. Uh, I've been shocked how many um, flights I have had to cancel. And I didn't realise how often I flew. Um and it, and it took some time. This is the positive side. That you know, the negative side of thing is is not seeing the people you work with, still working with them, or seeing them like this, and trying to hold meetings where you can't just give somebody a sideways glance, which smooths things <laughs> over. You know, that's much trickier uh, yeah. than, than now. And, and you know, the the loneliness is is not good. And watching the kids not be able to see their friends that that's pretty awful. Well, I wanted to start by asking you just just what you make of the rapid action on rough sleeping that we've seen in the last few weeks, and and like does does that really demonstrate that homelessness was never inevitable? Uh, homelessness certainly wasn't inevitable, but the, the demonstration of that is other countries in Europe. Um, the only country I think which had a rate similar to ours was Germany, and that was because of the uh, so many Syrian refugees, of which a very small proportion were homeless. And, of course, everybody knows about Finland and how few people are homeless in Finland. The sort of sad thing about about the rounding up of the homeless with this pandemic was it, it wasn't done because government cared about the homeless. It was done out of absolute fear that homeless people will spread this disease to people like them and their families. We, we should admit that. There's a remarkable similarity between the reaction to this disease and the way that the middle and upper classes reacted to cholera when that came into London in the 1840s. Um, back then, and we now know in hindsight, the risk to the upper and middle classes from cholera was much less than they thought. 
that they absolutely panicked, and it's good because they they finance sewer systems and so on. Um, but I am afraid that the reaction for the homeless was not about caring about the homeless. It was the idea that this disease will spread amongst the homeless, which, of course, was ridiculous, epidemiologically ridiculous. Um, this is not how the disease spreads. The disease spreads amongst people like me who move around the country. The disease came in of people who are quite well off, people who've been on a skiing holiday. The last people who spread this disease were homeless people. Do you think, though, you know, whatever the intentions were, we will now see homelessness being treated as a public health issue, which I know is something you've done a lot of work on in the past. We should. We're going to have to fight and work at it. There's a small danger, small, I hope, because I, I, I believe we're so much better than this. But there's a small danger of, of actually losing the lessons of these few weeks. Um, the, the major public health issue of homeless wasn't necessarily a street homelessness, although people were dying with an average life expectancy in their 40s. It was the thousands, tens of thousands, and, and in a sense millions of people whose mental health was damaged by the precarious situation that they're living in, knowing that there's a chance you could be homeless. Um, quarter of a million young Londoners under 25 sofa surfing. Now, they had a sofa to sleep on, but the effect on you of not knowing, not having a home, not knowing where you're going to be, and thinking you could be that person sleeping in the gutter and nobody would give a damn. Yeah, that was what we had as a situation. That is what we've got to get out of. But, but one other thing crucially important to say about homelessness, we right now have families locked into rooms in B&Bs in a situation in London which is absolutely untenable, uh, where it was bad enough being in a and b and all sleeping one room before this. But the inability to go out and socialise now, is, it's a form of prison. We have not requisitioned the empty properties in London and move those families with children out of a single room into some of those properties. And if we really cared, if we'd really cared, and given the emergency, we could have done that, and we chose not to. What do you think that the unprecedented steps taken by, by the government during this crisis show about the sort of ability to solve injustice and inequality? Because for a, you know, you, you've written about myths such as exclusion being necessary and despair being inevitable. I mean... One good thing, presumably, about this crisis is that it, it shatters. It shatters that on, on this issue. Yes. Oh, a whole set of things have been shattered. And, and the current government are learning a lot of things about life. You know, the things that never occurred within their lifetimes and things that they hadn't imagined. So, so our current government believed very much in a certain way of doing things. And they thought, to put it very simply, the market is best. Leave it to the market. The better it will be. The more you reduce the state, the better. To suddenly have to go from that to cancelling the debts of the NHS, uh, to turning the tap on, to realising that there is more important things than your weird belief in the power of the market, um, has been very educational, particularly for for this uh, government. And there are, of course, there are other times in, in history in Britain, particularly wartime, when a, sim- a similar thing occurs. You can become used to enormous injustices, and think it's okay. That's what they had become used to. You can be used to mass poverty and kind of rationalise it. You can't become used to millions of people suddenly looking at destitution and you are the government. And it's none of their fault whatsoever. Um, 
So I, th- I think it's a really interesting moment for learning and deciding what you value. I just have this fear that it'll be treated as a one-off uh, and as the numbers of deaths reduce, as the lockdown is, is released in the next few weeks, um, there'll be an attempt by people who were very comfortable with the way that Britain was last year. There'll be an attempt by some of them to get us back to that as soon as possible. And how do we, in your view, avoid when this is over going back to the way we were? What, what do you think is what do you think is 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 key to that? One thing is realizing that that is what we did every other time. Um, so to go back, I, I, I'll miss out TB and I miss out AIDS because it's a long, slow pandemic. The last one like this was 1968. Uh, my father can remember not being able to get out of bed for five days. It was so bad, the flu of 68. This is a flu, yeah. A million people around the world uh, probably killed, almost certainly will kill more people in Britain than this will kill. But we, And we were a younger population then. Uh, and then there was one in 57 and one in 51, which we have no memory of. Um, and we don't talk much about 1918-19. So we must first of all remember the standard model for a pandemic is that we do forget. However, things were slowing down this time. We were heading to a global recession anyway. Uh, a teenage girl from Sweden had captivated the world and people were worried about the state of things. And that's very different from the feelings that people had in the 60s and 50s where we were charging forward. Um, so I'm hopeful that because we didn't think that the world was necessarily going in a particularly good direction, we were ho- heading for a session we had trade wars we had environmental catastrophe hopefully we won't forget the lessons of this in the way that we did actually for past uh, pandemics in the last century can, can we talk about that slowdown you have a new book which is called slowdown you argue that as you say that the world was slowing down population growth economic growth tech innovation and so on even before this this lockdown uh, can you tell us a little bit about the the theme of the book uh the book it makes ironic it took me six years to write it uh finished the last corrections do it in january uh, it contains things about pandemics and epidemics and, and so on um but it's essentially a stepping back book that says if you step back and look at things uh like uh gdp growth you can see that it was actually lower in the 60s and the 50s, lower in the 70s and the 60s, lower in the 80s and the 70s. We always tend to find particular events like the oil shock or the recession of the 80s and blame the lack of growth on those particular events. But actually growth was slowing anyway. And many things. Well, I meant to write a book about the half of things that were rising and accelerating and the half that were falling. But when I carried on measuring things, I couldn't find almost anything accelerating. Uh, Only four or five things out of a thousand that I looked at. Uh, And the things that were accelerating was our carbon pollution, uh, the temperature of the planet, not just going up, but going up faster, the number of flights being taken worldwide, and the number of international university graduates. Now, this makes sort of sense generally. You shouldn't think that everything should always accelerate. But what I came to conclude when I looked at the rates of change in the past compared to now is that now we were actually slowing down at an unusual rate in the last six generations. Why is that, Danny? Uh, The guess is is that we've been through something. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, I'm an academic, uh, it sounds sort of silly, but 
we've been through an enormous transformation. The easiest way is to talk about population. Um, population from 1800 to now doubled, doubled and doubled again, uh, from a billion to almost eight billion. Never in the history of the species have, have we had anything like that. We thought it was normal. We've become used to this thing. But this thing was a transformation, not a steady state. Uh, this thing that we've lived through, and us, our parents, grandparents, their parents and grandparents, is an aberration. Life for a species doesn't normally change that fast. If you go back six or seven or eight or nine generations, your relatives then were living lives very like their parents, often in the village, often boring as far as we'd be concerned. Our children are now heading to doing things that are similar to us. So there's a slowdown. But it's based on empirics. It's not based on some great theory and reading. Yeah, there are so many academics who write very good theories. This is simply saying, step back and look at the numbers. And particularly in the last 10 or 20 years, the numbers have really changed. It's all good news for a more sustainable planet. Um, but it, so much of our model of how we do things assumes a rate of growth which is no longer... Uh, there that we're going to have to think differently uh, and this was without this pandemic this was on the cards anyway so, so on that what are the implications of this slowdown as as we look at how we recover from the current crisis it is that we have to adjust uh to seeing slow down for the benefits it has we have to get away from the idea that we have because we're used to acceleration of uh, seeing acceleration and growth as good, we should expect future lives to be more similar uh, to now, and we should expect innovation to come in ways which are not about uh, greater consumption. So in particular in the book, I've, I've looked at Japan and how Japan has innovated a huge amount socially in the last couple of decades, what, what were called the lost decades. They're only lost economically, they're not actually lost in, in terms of changes to Japanese uh, society. So, so there are all kinds of uh, implications. But the main implication is that we shouldn't expect things to change as much as they changed for our parents and grandparents. They went through incredible change. And the danger for us mentally is that we think that's normal because it was normal for them. Uh, but we, we shouldn't expect to go through that, go through that change. And it's easy nowadays to say we should expect there to be less flying in future. <laughs> but you know, it didn't make sense to carry on accelerating the number of flights in the world as it was before. Um, anyway, the slowdown becomes somewhat easier, hopefully, now. Well, look, Danny Dawling, a very stimulating conversation. Your new book is Slow Down, uh, Professor of Geography at University of Oxford. Thank you so much for joining us. And next time, your wife is going to be on playing the guitar. <laughs> she will. Thank you ever so much. What did you think? Well, this isn't the first time this has come up in recent weeks, is it? But when there's a need to do something, it can be done. I mean, that, that's that's the thing. We talked about this idea a couple of years ago. We used the example of Finland, where they'd used this housing first idea of just solving homelessness by first off giving people a place to live. And it, it seemed, you know, like something we could only dream of here. And of course, you wouldn't wish the circumstances in in which this has happened on the country but yeah that that that's really uh, made an impression on me that a 5 year plan was enacted in 2 days 
it is absolutely remarkable that a government target, which was a five-year target, became a two-day target. I mean, it only ever goes, the, at least in my experience, the other way. You know, two-day targets become five-year targets. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, I mean, and it, you know, it just shows what is doable if you've got, as you say, as if you've got the will. And and now, of course, the question is how, you know, how do you stop it, you know, sliding back? But, but you know, you've got to ask, well, why, why would anyone want to go back to the way things were before? You know, and I was, I was actually thinking about it, you know, I mean, there should really be sort of, um, it, it really should be the case that, you know, people shouldn't be, shouldn't be, you know, people really shouldn't be turfed out of where they are until they have somewhere else to go. Because now that we've made this progress, you know, it's just got to be, it, it's, you know, we can't, we can't lose it. That's sort of what I feel. And you've got a much clearer idea, I think, than I have of what these numbers mean and the scale of things of government spending. But that that figure of, I think, around £90 million, it, it, seems, it seems like nothing in that context. Well, exactly. It's certainly in the context of, you know, the, the costs facing government at the moment. And, and and actually, what's even more remarkable is how little the, you know, that's to so, that's to really, you know, almost, I think, according to Matt, solve the problem. But, but, you know, look how little it seems to have cost to get to where we are. You know, it just, it just shows, well, it sh- to be honest, it shows you've got to be more bold and less timid and more ambitious. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you've got thoughts about what you've heard on today's podcast or future ideas, uplifting if pos, uh, then please do get in touch at cheerfulpodcast.com. Chloe uh, tweeted at us and she said, I injured myself in January and yesterday I ran my first non-stop 30-minute run since while listening to Ed Miliband glowing about Parkrun on Cheerful Podcast. And I just felt so full of joy. 
I've really missed running. I can't wait to go back to Park Run UK when it returns. Chloe was talking about our interview with Paul Sinton Hewitt, the amazing founder of Park Run. Thank you so much for being in touch, Chloe. I am also looking forward to Park Run restarting. I confess I have not been running really during this um, crisis. Um, and so I suspect I'll be even slower than I was before. I saw somebody tweeting a link to uh, a TED talk on how to get the runners high, which is something that has always uh, eluded me. Without so running? Maybe, yeah, well, it didn't say without running. I think it said with running. Oh, right. Because usually I don't get any kind of high from running, just a, you know, a stitch. But maybe it's because I've got flat feet. But I'm going to. I do want those talk. trainers. I do want those. Those. You remember those Nike trainers? The ones that, that give you the slight advantage. The ones like like pogo sticks. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, this tweet comes from Ayla Ishkander. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Of all the names that Ed Miliband would call his imaginary dog, Chutney definitely doesn't come to mind. I imagined Harold. I particularly enjoyed the idea of Ed running after Harold, screaming his name in Richmond Park with herds of deer legging it. Like Steptoe and Son, like Harold. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I thought of Harold Lloyd. Oh, I thought Harold Wilson. Oh, interesting. Yeah. We all project a different Harold onto you, Ed. Gordon, I could have called it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this email uh, arrived from Sarah Collins, who says, this isn't a complaint, but... I can hear random key noises, email notifications, and swirling sounds. Guilty. Not all the time, but every now Guilty. <laughs> Guilty as charged. We are at a stage now where we have to start recording the podcast 15 minutes early just while Ed switches off his various devices, asks uh, his two sons to give him a wide berth, settles Chutney down with a bowl of imaginary Now, I food. am very conscious that... At least when I came round to your house and I was late, you got to just, like, stay in your house. I suppose you get to stay in your house now, but it's sort of... Uh, at least you could kind of you could kind of aim off my time of arrival. Well, any, any random noises are probably coming from your end, then. And we've had quite a few tweets and uh, email messages like this one. This came from Jack Ashton, who says, Slightly gutted that Channel 4's Reasons to be Cheerful Tonight isn't Cheerful Podcast. Uh, I really thought for a moment that I was going to get half an hour of Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd on the TV. Yes, this is this new Matt Lucas show. And is it uh, actually called also... Reasons to be Cheerful? It is. I believe it's written by Harry Hill or created by Harry Hill and Matt Lucas is hosting it. I haven't w watched it. I mean, we haven't talked about this in detail, but I mean, I know uh, Ian Jury deserves the original credit, right, for this. But I yes. do think, and this is your credit, not mine, because it was you who came up with the thing. I do think, and I know because the trouble is there's no way to trace this, although it might be worth doing a sort of Google, you know, do Go oh, doodle, yeah, yeah, yeah. doodle, doodoos, doodah thing, you know, of sort of looking back yes. at how, how much the phrase, maybe Joel could do this, how much the phrase was being used like you know five years ago 10 years ago and like then two years ago and one year ago and now because i do think we've had an, an, an we've met we've we've had a like marginal impact on the zeitgeist on this don't you think i think so so obviously there's the song and then i think people had sort of periodically used it as a title for books or stage shows or whatever but i think you know the the podcast has brought it back into the published public consciousness you, you saw it as headlines uh for features and stuff in the couple of years after we launched. Do you think we should do some sort of, you know, academic research? Yes, I think that would be a good a good way to spend our time in lockdown. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter, at Cheerful Podcast. Or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast.
Righty tighty, we're in the outro. And I believe we have some real time results of the reasons to be cheerful Google metrics uh, that Joel was just looking into. The tension is unbearable. So I have a graph in front of me. It starts in 2004, goes up to the present day, and it shows spikes where searches for reasons to be cheerful as a search term uh, have increased. And I can tell you, we started the podcast in September of 2017, and the biggest spike looks like it was about 2006. There was quite a big spike in 2004 as well. I think you're doing us down here. That's probably some Ian Jury re-release. But, but, you know, actually... There's definitely an upswing after um, April 28. Well, it, it, it looks like sort of 20, late 2018, 2019, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. I think we've got a little spike there where we uh, where we launched the podcast as well. A spikeette. It's not so much a little mountain, it's more of a hillock, but even so... We've got a claim, haven't we? Yes. Well, maybe we can get uh, another little spike for Reasons to be Cheerful by inviting people to go to our website where you can sign up uh, for our newsletter. Smooth. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, you can sign up for our newsletter, but also there's... Uh, Lots of in-depth stuff on previous episodes of the podcast if you fancy reading up and delving into the various bits of research that we've done. Um, then go and knock yourself out. Just search Reasons to be Cheerful on Google. Or you could just go to cheerfulpodcast.com. Just trying to get those um, search spikes up. Uh, so I think you're off to do some pressure hosing. I'm, I'm off to watch my wife pressure hose. Yep, that's, that's a kind of good use of lockdown. Uh, I'd like to thank Matt Downey, Maggie Brunges and Danny Dawling. And Emma Caution produces our podcast with research and backup from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the iDents. Ed Seed composed the music. And the artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. 